You sending the wolf? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss? everyone and welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I have a special episode for you and I'm very, very excited. Um, okay, so I've only done this one other time before and it was after the movie Hereditary came out last year in 2018 and there was so much talk, so much buzz, so many different interpretations, so many strong reactions to that movie and so I knew that I wanted to sit down with a friend of mine and talk about it in a full spoiler-filled discussion. Um, and so Kaylin Corrigan, who is a journalist and, and a dear friend, came and sat down and recorded an extra episode with me on Hereditary. And so the, three weeks ago, the movie Glass came out and I was seeing such widespread mixed reactions to the movie, whether it was from critics, whether it was from fans. Um, I was seeing some people saying it was a crazy movie and it was uh, just so audacious and people couldn't believe that Knight took the risks that he took. Some people saying they hated it. Some people saying that they loved it and they thought it was awesome and super fun. But one thing that is undeniable is that now with a third weekend in a row, Glass was the number one movie in America. Um, Glass is a huge success at the box office. It is the fi finale to this uh, 177 Rail trilogy. I think that's what they're calling it. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I, I went back to Kaylin and I said, um, oh, and I didn't turn my phone off, but I went back to Kaylin and I said, uh, hey, will you come on and talk about Glass, how do you feel about these movies? Do you like Unbreakable? Do you like um, the uh, Split? Have you seen Glass? And she said, yeah, you know, I kind of remember the, liking the first two. Uh, let me check out the, let me check out Glass and see what I think. And, um, and then she got back to me and she said that she loved Glass. And I was like, ooh, this is getting interesting. Um, because I, I didn't, um, you know, I, I really admired the movie. I had fun with the movie. I wouldn't say that I loved it, but I also, I also didn't, didn't have major problems with a lot of the things that people were saying they had issues with. That said, um, what transpired was an awesome conversation, a really thorough discussion, not only of Knight and his work and of the movie Glass, but the entire trilogy um, and comic book movies and where we are now in pop culture and, and so on and so forth. The performances, the special effects, the lack of special effects, um, color schemes, cinematography, score. We, we touch on all of it. Um, so this is a kind of a longer episode than normal, but I think you're going to enjoy it, so I'll keep the intro short and sweet. Here is Kaylin Corrigan and I talking about glass. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready for all of our sweet convos? <laughs> 
Um, I'm glad that I'm glad I'm actually okay. So I'm really glad that we're doing this. First of all, you were like the first person I thought of because we did hereditary, obviously. And I was like, that'll be fun. But then uh so I, we're talking about Glass. I liked Glass and I liked this trilogy. Um, and then I texted you and you were like, I think I love it, but let me think about it. And then I started doing a bunch of reading about Glass and I was like, did I like this movie? And so now I don't really know where I stand. So I was curious uh, to start out where, where you stand. Like what your initial text was like, I think I loved this. Do you still feel like you love it? I do. It's... It's strange because first I should say that I'm a person that originally I did not really consider myself a fan of superhero movies. Okay. Um, aside from Tim Burton's Batman, because Michael Keaton is my boy. Yes. I was very iffy for a while on superhero films. I felt like the uh, MCU was kind of just like cogs in a machine. I, I used to tell people, you know, it, it, it's silly because they're all just movies that are basically trailers for the next movie. Mm-hmm. And then I I had some writing assignment where I had to do a deep dive on superhero films and watching all of these movies back to back and reading on the history of superheroes, I kind of gained a new appreciation Mm -hmm. for them and started to understand what people saw in them. And now I'm in it, you know, now I'm invested. So I have to see how it turns out. But I think maybe that's why I liked Glass a little bit more than other people, Uh because to me, I was trying to figure out how I felt about it when I was watching the movie, like my thoughts were bouncing around and I was like, there's parts of this I like, I don't know. And then once Samuel Jackson started explaining his plan, I was like, oh, I get it. This is kind of like a nineties superhero movie. Yes. I'm totally on board. Yes. I'm very into this. It's, uh, it, it took me by surprise. It wasn't a movie that I, it, it was not a movie that I expected to like. I didn't expect what kind of movie it would, it, it became, yeah. but I found myself really into it. Yeah. It's interesting because I, um, really love birth movies, death. I know you've done some writing for them and, um, Scott Wampler. I love his work. I, I think he's very funny and, um, and he and I, I feel like I've only met him in person once, I think. Um, but, but over social media, we interact a lot and I feel sometimes like he and I are the same person, like in terms of our taste <laughs> and, and so I was very much, he is a fan of M. Night Shyamalan and as am I, you know, I've sort of come to a place with night where, and I think we might've talked about this, but for our listeners who, who haven't heard me say this, I was so excited when TNT announced that they were going to do Tales from the Crypt and that night was going to sort of be overseeing that project because When I really think about all of his original films, whether it's the ones that he writes and directs, whether it is the movies like Devil, which he over, you know, produced and uh, did the story, or whether it is um, movies that are his, that are misfires that I hate, um, which is uh, honestly only the lady in the water that I've seen, but I, I really don't like that movie. Um, That said, all of them I think would be really great 44-minute Tales from the Crypt episodes, you know? I like his sensibility. I like his imagination. Um, And I I appreciate, like, all of the... Whether it works or not, I like the swings that he's taking. So with all of that being said, Scott 
is Scott from Birth Movies Death also likes M. Night Shyamalan or appreciates M. Night Shyamalan. And his reactions to Glass were really funny for me because I hadn't seen it. I didn't see a press screening. I just went and saw it like normal. And um, I did read his review, which was not spoiler filled. And he basically said like in the third act, he, he, he kind of echoed a sentiment that I had seen, which was the first hour... It's pretty much everything that you would expect or want from this movie as the third installment of this, which I had not heard the East Rail 177 trilogy. That's what people are calling these movies, Oh, which I, I didn't realize, but until today when I was reading it in The Hollywood Reporter, but whatever. Um, okay, so he was saying the first act is or hour is pretty much everything that you would want. The second 45 minutes, you're kind of like, uh, I don't know how I feel about this. And then the end is just so nonsensical that it's just like, what is he? Oh, he's really doing this. And so I was kind of like, I'm ready. I made my boyfriend take me to see this in a theater opening weekend, whether it's a catastrophe, whether it's so batshit, whether it's a ridiculous, whether I love it, whether I, I want to see it. And by the time I actually saw it, I was like, oh, well, this wasn't nearly as crazy as I sort of thought it was going to be. Like, this is kind of exactly what I thought it was going to be in a way, if that makes sense. Interesting. So how was it exactly what you thought it was going to be? Well, so I had rewatched Unbreakable, and um, which I, I didn't love the, when I saw it in the theater, but I was also a young teenager, if that. Like, I was very, you know, and, and also I've made this point before, but um, the, uh, the the marketing materials for Unbreakable were very much piggybacking off of The Sixth Sense. So I felt like part of the reason that the critical and, and um, audience reaction, because it made a lot of money, but it wasn't Sixth Sense money and the reception was mixed, mostly negative from audiences. Um, so that said, I didn't like it because I thought it was going to be like The Sixth Sense. And then it says the opening panel or title is about comic books. And I was like, what? Um, so I rewatched it and I appreciate so much all the things that people love Unbreakable for. The fact that they don't, that he doesn't show you the big fight sequences. He doesn't show you like the big battles. He doesn't show you the apprehension of Mr. Glass. He, you know, by the police, it, 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 it do, it's truly a character story. And um, so with Glass, I think I knew that the big spectacle probably wasn't what we were going to get, if that makes sense. So the, the notion that we're going to focus on this big tower, this big tower, we're going to the tower. Just kidding, guys. Not going to go to the tower. I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of... That is what I expect from this. You know what I mean? Yeah. A and also, in, even to tie Split into that, for me, one of the things that I appreciate about Split, because I will say, uh, did you see it at Fantastic Fest? Yes. Okay, same. So we had this, Kaylin and I had this really uh, amazing experience where we saw Split in September, the year before it came out in January. So it was like we saw it four months early, essentially. And I enjoyed the movie I loved watching the reveal with an audience. I loved watching people get it at different times. It was very fun. Um, but the thing I appreciate most about that movie, aside from James McAvoy's performance, is that they really did keep the superhero stuff in uh, 
a realm of plausible reality, like parkour or, you know, things that human beings, like I liked when the beast is crawling along or whatever, or the things he was able to do. It seemed plausible enough to where I was like, okay, this doesn't jolt me out of reality. And so to tie that into how I kind of expected that from Glass, they, you know, the character drama and aversion to the big set piece and Unbreakable, plus the, this is mostly realistic or we're going to try and make it as realistic for a heightened human as I possibly can in Split, kind of fed into Glass for me. Yeah, I I agree. I, um, I think it's a good point to call it a character story, and I think that's why I... I, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of movies like this. I'm a, I'm a fan of Glass because it does remind me, um, and I, you know, I relate everything back to Buffy, but mm-hmm. it gave me strong Buffy vibes when I was watching it. It feels like something that I think would have been received more warmly if it came out in the 90s. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's interesting too that both Buffy and Glass are comic book movies, but they are not based on real comics. Mm-hmm. They are completely of their own mythology by their creators and they're very much human tales told through the hyperbole of super beings and I, I was watching an interview with M. Night Shyamalan where he said that his inspiration for Glass was that he wanted to take real life superheroes and put them in the real world and see how they would adjust to daily life here and if a man is a superhero, but he's in the real world and years and years go by, would he eventually have these very human notions of self-doubt and how would he deal with that? And I thought that was such an extraordinary thing to explore and a really brave sentiment to take in a world where Marvel has kind of taken over Mm -hmm. and created these huge blockbusters that although they can feel relatable, don't necessarily have that human element as much because they've exploded so largely that now when we go to see a superhero movie, we expect the weight of the world mm-hmm. to fall on these films. We expect these superheroes to solve crimes and cases and villains on a massive universal scale. Like, I mean, unless, you know, the whole like world is being like lifted off of its access. We're not going to be satisfied anymore. So of course, mm-hmm. when a story like glass comes out, people are going to say, that's it. But to me, that's part of the charm is that it's so deeply personal and it's something that's like a very human story that everybody can relate to. Yeah. So this, this is something that I really want to dig into because I, I am of two minds of it. Everything you just said, I agree with. Absolutely. But at the same time, so here's the trick. Here's the, here's the sticky part. You know, Unbreakable comes out in 2000 and, um, it is, uh, in, a, in for lack of a better term, a quote fingers realistic super or grounded superhero movie in a time where that was not a thing. Like it's it's really hard for us, I think, if, if who are used to this Marvel MCU DCEU um, landscape. Even hell, even the superhero shows on television on the CW are you know leaps and bounds more advanced than. A lot of things that you would see in feature films, you know, mm-hmm. two decades ago, right? So I get that. Um, Knight was ahead of his time when he made Unbreakable. However, by the time we get to Glass, the world has changed. And 
there were parts to me that felt like he, because, you know, he keeps saying in all this press, I thought of the ending of Glass 20 years ago. And it's like, we know because it's a bit anticlimactic. And I totally agree with what you said. It's part of the charm and it's intentional. I believe that was intentional. That was the point of his story. Look inside yourself is the point of the story. Um, Be amazed at what you are capable of doing every day of your life is part the point of the story. That said, you know, even Justin, my boyfriend, and I read this in the New York Times, I think, um, brought up the the finale, the, the viral video, what they actually did and put out. Would anybody, how would people react to that in the real world now? I mean, truly, they'd probably be like, oh, viral marketing for something, don't care. Like, and I wonder how much it's Knight's responsibility to adjust a little bit and to sort of be like, how can you cleverly still make that point, but do it in a way that actually accounts for the fact that we live in 2019 when the MCU and the DCEU is a real part of everyone's lexicon, whereas in 2000 when Unbreakable came out, it was not. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not a perfect film. It's definitely a messy film. And in a way, it benefits from its time period because I feel like if this was a film that came out, you know, directly after Unbreakable, you know, assuming that Split was shortly following Mm -hmm. Unbreakable and then we had Glass all within the same, like, five-year realm, um, it's it's something that would not have worked as well at that time because the comic book culture had not exploded the way that it has. So if he was trying to create this commentary on comic book culture and saying that people are seeing themselves as real life superheroes because they're so obsessed with this world, it wouldn't have made as much sense in that time period. But at the same time, I do see what you're saying. And because of the world that we live in now, that was a thought that had kind of crossed my mind when Mm -hmm. that big reveal happened because I was like, if I saw that, would I believe that it was somebody actually bending steel? I probably wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, I like the idea behind it, the whole notion that, you know, here's these people that are being oppressed by a higher power, by authoritative figures and saying, we will not be silenced. We exist and we are here and we're not going away. But it it is something that it it does feel slightly dated. Mm -hmm. And at times the commentary is a little too on the nose. Yes. And the movie does wink a little too hard at its audience. And that is something that did bother me a little. Sure, sure. Um, I, um, yeah. So, okay. One other big thing that I really, really, really for sure want to talk about is Bruce Willis. Um. I think Bruce Willis has forgotten how to act. (laughs) And I say that pretty sincerely with a straight face because, you know, if you participate in pop culture, you've probably heard Kevin Smith talk about cop out. You know, you probably we we've you know, we've seen all the jokes or the memes of Bruce Willis shows up in a movie and he just literally the best he can do is say his lines and he's clearly cashing a check. And by the way, Bruce Willis is a great actor and he's very charming when he wants to be. So here's where I feel like he's forgotten how to act (laughs) because and I'm really not trying to be smug or smarmy. I believe that Bruce Willis showed up for his friend M. Night Shyamalan. Like, I don't believe Bruce... I think that Bruce Willis very much realized, you know, Knight can't make this movie unless I am in it. 
and part of it. I want to do as little as possible. Like there are scenes where he's in his cape where it's like, oh, that's clearly not Bruce Willis. Like that is his stand-in. That is his stunt double. And it's not even like, oh, his stunt double. It's like, no, that is Bruce Willis did not want to come to set today because his face was not going to be seen. So they had a guy in a coat. And I say this because in re-watching Unbreakable, David Dunn, Bruce Willis creates a character like he's doing great work as David Dunn and um I was truly because I I for an episode of this podcast that never got recorded rewatched the sixth sense in the last two months and god I mean I love the sixth sense I will never not love that movie I think it's aged beautifully I think it holds up whether you know the reveal or you don't um but Bruce Willis is excellent. And, and, and he's so good with Tony Collette. He's so good with his wife. He's so good with Haley Joel Osment and Unbreakable. He is great. He's great in those quiet moments. He's great with his son. I mean, so I watch Glass and I'm like, McAvoy showed up. Sam Jackson delivers lines that are ridiculous, but he does them amazingly because he's fucking Sam Jackson. He's so great. He's so great. He shows up. The kids showed up. You know, everybody showed up. And David Dunn was gone and he was replaced with Bruce Willis who is doing someone a favor. And I cannot tell you, like, listen, as you say, it's a messy movie. I agree. Um, But I cannot tell you how much dead weight I felt like Bruce Willis was in this movie. Yeah. I don't know. That's why he was so limited in his role, because I felt like he wasn't given a lot to do, and I kind of just assumed that that was because the spotlight is now on McAvoy, um, which is strange for a movie called Glass, which is about Samuel L. Jackson's character, but it seems like that's not where our focus is. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess, I mean... Obviously, he did such a tremendous job in Split. I can understand why everybody would point the focus towards uh, James McAvoy's mini characters. But I, I, and I guess the bar has been lowered so much for me with Bruce Willis because mm-hmm. I'm so used to him phoning it in mm-hmm. lately. And I'm so used to him giving just a subpar performance that I was actually some, uh, kind of impressed with oh, wow. this performance. So I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, he actually did a, a pretty good job. Okay. Because I'm so used to like Copland and yeah. movies where it, it's so obvious that he does not want to be there and he is not giving any sort of effort. And like you said, it, it almost feels like he's forgotten how to act. And I'm not sure if it's that he hasn't put in the effort in so long that he forgot how to do it or if he just truly does not care and is completely spoiled and just no longer a human being because he's been (laughs) in Hollywood for too long and had too much given to him on a silver platter. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and listen, I read a bunch of reviews tonight before uh, before you came over, none of them really mentioned the performances with the exception of James McAvoy. Yeah. And, and you know, I maybe I'm being too hard on Bruce Willis. I just, you know, it's funny. It's like we all have varying degrees of love for, for, for different things. And there are so many ways that I could see. And again, I like, I enjoy, I enjoyed Goss. I, I did. I thought it was fun. 
and I appreciate that M. Night Shyamalan is making these movies in the way that he's making them. But that said, I could see where Glass would be disappointing to a lot of fans for a lot of reasons. And I guess for me, the biggest takeaway from, there were two from Unbreakable, and I'm sure you'll have thoughts on the next one. Um, But one of them was absolutely, I was sad that David Dunn just wasn't in this movie. And um, because I think he is a great character. And I also think that you're right. Like, again, Justin, Justin, my boyfriend and I had extensive conversations about this movie because he and I have very different taste, like very different. Um, But he also mentioned like, well, he didn't have any, Bruce Willis didn't have anything to do. And I was like, yeah, but don't you think that's because he had a conversation with his friend Knight and said, dude, I will do this for you, but I don't want to do any, I don't, write me out of this. It felt like he got a note saying, please write David Dunn out of this. Um, Because it doesn't work if you don't have him there. But like, I just can't imagine that that was the, those were the scenes that Knight had dreamed up initially, but I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I I mean, this is what I expected, but I was a little... It, it, it's funny because, I mean, I agree that James McAvoy did a great job in this movie, and so in comparison, he's definitely going to look better than what Bruce Willis is giving us, especially because McAvoy's character is so animated and Bruce almost has to play the straight man. Sure. But um, I actually felt like, I mean, I, I mean, I, I really want to reiterate that I enjoyed the movie. Yeah. I just, I'm a very opinionated person and I have many thoughts, but I, I almost thought that McAvoy went a little too over the top and I, I guess he has to because uh, to me it's the same, like I always tell people there's never going to be a predator as good as the first predator because the first predator, we didn't know exactly what we were dealing with. Yeah. And part of the movie is the mystery yes. and unveiling of this creature. And then once we know who he is and what he's here for then of course the sequels aren't going to be as great because you don't have that element of surprise. And for me, that's kind of how I felt with this movie. Even though I enjoyed it very much, of course, in my mind, I'm going to rank it beneath Unbreakable Mm -hmm. and beneath Split because Unbreakable and Split are two movies about us discovering who these people are and we're not sure what we're dealing with at first. And then this is the full-blown version. But saying that, having said that, it is a little strange that when we have the full-blown version, David Dunn's character feels almost withheld. Yeah, and I do agree. Um, I don't think that... The thing that's tough about a character like Kevin that that James McAvoy plays is that, or all the characters that he plays, I agree. There was too much, but it was too much because I think it was written. Like, too much Hedwig. Uh, right off the bat, I was like, night. No, like we get it. We, yes, everyone thinks Hedwig is charming, but like, I don't need six scenes with Hedwig, you know? And, and I, I, so, so too much of a good thing. Absolutely. But I did feel, and you know, adding more personalities, like it felt like sequelitis. It felt like, okay, what worked about the first one? So let's do more of that. And, you know, but, but to me, the performance was great. Like McAvoy is just He's so good, um, and and it's remarkable. The change and the and the distinction between those people are is remarkable. For sure. But but the writing is where I think that sort of falters a little bit, and it's the same with Anya Taylor Joy's character. Like, boy, I did not appreciate the way she. she I did not like the way that he took her character because it seemed like he was setting her up to be a villain. But then ultimately that is not realized. 
Yeah, she doesn't get a whole lot to do in this movie. Mm-mm. I felt like her arc and split really ties in well to that little franchise that they're building yeah. because like at the end of the day, these are all superheroes that are dealing with family trauma, which is uh, very interesting and a very different path to take from what we are normally used to. We're, we're used to rich guys getting richer and building fancy weapons. Totally. Or beautiful gods being called upon to save their people. But here's a story about broken people kind of rising from the ashes and using their mental health issues, their disabilities as their source of strength. And I find that very inspiring Absolutely. and a very cool way to go about superheroes. But then it, it, it seems like they're setting that up for Anya Taylor-Joy's character as well, because here's a girl that dealt with some abuse for a very long time in her family. And that's the ultimate reason why the beast spares her is because he sees her as pure because she is actually broken like him. Mm-hmm. But then here we have this movie where we can really dig into that and expand on these character arcs. And she's just kind of there to calm down Kevin when he gets too feisty. Yeah, it's it's like I, you know, one thing that I appreciated after Split came out was um, I read an interview with Knight where he was talking to a journalist. I can't remember if it was April Wolf. I can't remember. It was a woman. I know that. And she brought up that it seemed like um, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, it's Casey, right? Casey, um, that her superhero was empathy. And like in the transcript of the interview that I was reading, he was sort of taken aback by that in a good way and was like, wow, say that again. And, and he was like, I think you're really hitting the nail on the head. And, you know, so I wanted to see that go one of two ways. I wanted to see Casey either go to the dark side, kind of like I want to see Rey go to the dark side in Star Wars. Like I see her, I want to I see that internal battle in her and I want to see that fleshed out. Like I want to see more. Um, so I either want to see her kind of go, fuck this, um, I am the master of all of the pain or whatever. I'm making this up, but you know what I'm saying. Or I want to see her fight to embrace empathy as her superpower. I want to see her be angry. I want to see her realize that it sucks that she has to be the bigger, better person, but she uses her superpower to prevent Kevin from hurting more people instead of being like, hey, buddy, oh, I'm here for you. What can I do for... Like, there is a way to get the same result but do it in a way that gives her character integrity and still allows her to be a powerful person as opposed to sort of just being like, I'm here to calm Kevin down, essentially. Like a mom, like I'm, I'm a babysitter. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a little strange. Um, I don't, I don't want to make this assumption because it's a big assumption, but I wonder if M. Night Shyamalan struggles with his female characters. I would agree with that. I mean, it's just something that makes a, a little bit of sense to me that obviously a guy who has been a guy his entire life is better at writing men than women. I see it happen all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it is a little strange because I... I like the finale i really like the idea of these like superheroes working through their childhood trauma like just dueling and out in a parking lot working through stuff but then there's casey there in the same parking lot and she's not really working through anything no um so one of the other thing that to me was a, was um by comparison as a fan of a new fan of unbreakable i mentioned the um, bruce willis comparison earlier um did you notice so did you rewatch unbreakable uh, anytime recently or has it just been a while? 
it's been a minute. I did rewatch Split like a few days ago. Okay. So one of the biggest things, there's two things I noticed about Unbreakable. The first one was Bruce Willis's performance. The second one was the cinematography. Every shot, not every shot, most shots, most of the shots in Unbreakable are actually comic, feel like, look like comic book panels. There is such an attention to detail in Unbreakable, the way that movie looks. It was truly like blew my mind when I, cause I, I rewatched Unbreakable um, look with a critical eye, like looking for things. And when I noticed that about a third of the way through the movie, I couldn't stop noticing it. And I was like, holy shit, this is crafted. Like this is cinema, this is intentional and it to me adds such a dimension to Unbreakable, where you're just like, wow, and the score like is so unique and all of that. So it is a different cinematographer for sure, uh, or a different DP um, in Unbreakable and Glass. Um, but man, I was watching Glass with that type of eye, trying to see, did he do it again? Did he keep it up? Not really. And it was just kind of like. Oh, you know, that's a drag because it was it. I think whether it was con- um, for the audience, whether it was conscious or unconscious, I think it's one of the things that makes Unbreakable very special is is that attention to detail. And, you know, um, they definitely. So, yeah, that was just something that I noticed where I was like, ah, fooey, like, you know, yeah. missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I just went in accepting that it was not going to be unbreakable. Oh, of course, yes. In the same way that I accepted that Split was not going to be unbreakable, although having said that, at the time, I didn't know what I was getting into. I just thought Split was a new Shyamalan film and uh, was taken aback by the ending. But I, I guess I, in a way, have come to expect Shyamalan perhaps won't deliver what he gave us at the beginning of his career because mm. I really do love The Sixth Sense and I think Unbreakable is a fantastic movie and even though looking back on it now signs can come across a little goofy I was very into it when the movie came out. I think and it's effective. It's very effective. Yeah. He's very good at building suspense in really beautiful environments. Yes. I mean those early films were so gorgeous. And I, I like the village. I, the village is where it, it kind of divides for most people. Um, some people now all of a sudden are like, um, science is dumb. And I'm like, okay, but everybody used to love that movie. So I don't know. But, um, to me, I still like the village too. Um, I think it is an incredibly dark and political movie. Um, but again, we get hung up on the goofy twist and it's like, okay, well, you know, that's in some ways it's like, you did it to yourself. Stop writing these reveals. Just make a straight movie. Yeah. But also, it's like, give the people what they want. So, you yeah. Know. But yeah. yes. Yeah, The Village is one that I'm not super hyped on the story, but I still think looking at it aesthetically, it's fucking gorgeous. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Yes, for sure. And the symbolism is all there and the color scheme. That was another... Okay. So, I want to talk about uh, Staple, Dr. Staple. Um, which is, um, um, what's her name? Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson, thank you. Um, so I was watching her very closely, and the thing that tipped me off that something wasn't right with her was her color scheme. So did you notice, that you? I'm sh- like, David, the, David Dunn is always in green, mm-hmm. and his son 
is always in army green. Like their they their colors are matched. Glass is always in purple. His mother is always in purple. And Kevin is always in yellow. And and Anya Taylor Joy at one point is in that like orange yellow whatever. Um, and I noticed that Dr. Staple her color doesn't match any of theirs. And so I was like, because he's telling us with those colors um, in various scenes, like easy, obvious example, not subtle example, is in Glass when like somebody realizes something about, oh, the bad guy, and cut to like a purple light that says villains on it. I mean, it is, again, not subtle. But that is all throughout the movie, you know, and and Dr. Staple's color is pink, and um, like the pink room where the three of them are there and she's like analyzing them. But she wears the same, you know, different shades of the same color, and so that kind of led me to believe, okay, so that he's telling us she's not on Glass's side, she's not on Kevin's side, and she's not on um, the other side, David's side. So she's doing something completely on her own. And when it turned out to be shadow organization or whatever, I was kind of like, eh. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely noticed the color scheme, and I mean, I, I of course noticed that it was not quite on the scale that Unbreakable was, but I, I did kind of like the camera work. I mean, it definitely wasn't as high-tech and purposeful as Unbreakable, but I did notice many shots kind of starting the scene sort of at an angle, kind of off-kiltered, mm-hmm. almost like they're trying to keep us off-center mm-hmm. because we don't know what's coming, and I, I appreciated that. I, I will say that even though... I'm not sure we'll get another sixth sense. M. Night Shyamalan is definitely having a bit of a resurgence, mm-hmm. which is great. And I think he really benefits from small scale films. Totally, He works great in a small format. When he's got all the money in the world and all the resources at his disposal, when he makes, you know... Um, the uh, after earth after earth and airbender yeah that it, it's almost like too much for him to yes. play with it's he like really candy restrictions too many can- too much candy yeah yeah and, and i think he's doing well now because he's having to hold back um i i think the visit was a, a good return to form mm-hmm. and split was a, a great you know re- that, that I, when i watched split i was like oh Shyam- Shyamalan is back mm-hmm. and uh i think that glass is still an example of a great small scale film for him, even though it is technically a superhero movie mm-hmm. and it's a little bit bigger than Split, he's he's finally blossoming again because he's having to hold back in these environments. Yeah. And it's nice to see him turning out good stuff again. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that for sure. Um I uh let's see, I'm gonna look at my notes and make sure that I don't like miss anything. Oh, one thing I did, and again, I know, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being like negative Nancy, because again, I thought this movie was really fun. But one thing that I was also kind of surprised about, and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with like the difference, the time difference between the first film and the final film, which is, and, and what has happened in pop culture over that time. Um, the, the reveal, so at the end of Split, um, or not towards the end of Split, um, you know, Kevin goes to the train station with the flowers and then unleashes the beast. And um, the internet figured out in three seconds, the, once it was revealed that this was a connect, connected to Unbreakable, oh, a train, Kevin's dad, who disappeared and left him vulnerable, was probably on the same train, um, 
that Bruce Willis was on, therefore Glass created the hero and the villain. I, you know, and this is like a, a tough question for, for fan service and all that kind of stuff because in some ways I want creators to, to do the vision that they have and not be at the whim of what the internet says and all of that. But on the other hand, when that turned out to sort of be what it was in the end of Glass, I was kind of like, I mean, the internet figured that out like two years ago, real fast. So like, you didn't want to go in there and like finesse it a little bit. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it kind of was just like, yeah, we know that's not, that's not a reveal really, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I guess I was a little late to the party because I definitely didn't see that coming. Really? Um, yeah, maybe because it had been so long since I had seen Unbreakable. Okay. My brain just didn't quite put that together. Okay. Um, and because I was kind of just naturally not watching a ton of superhero movies for so long, I don't know if my brain was in that world. Um, I'm usually watching like stuff from the 40s because I'm an old man. No, <laughs> which is great. Very I'm good. Like, I'm going to watch His Girl Friday. Screw Aquaman. Classy. <laughs> <laughs> so classy. No, and that's fair. I mean, and I'm not saying, like, by the way, I'm not saying that when I saw, I, I want to be clear that I'm not being, like, obviously when I saw Split, that was the first thing I thought of. But with any Google, like, I did a Google search, and I was like, okay, what are some Easter eggs in, because yeah. it had been so long since I had seen Unbreakable. And so I was like, what are some Easter eggs in Split that connect the two that I missed? And, um... That one about the train, that observation, was at the top of, like, every list, from Reddit to pop culture websites, et cetera. And so the only reason I point that out is not that it's obvious, but just that anybody who really cared about such things picked up on it immediately. Yeah. And it was, like, a mainstream observation. So I, that's kind of what I mean. It's, like, knowing that Knight is involved in the culture – that I kind of expected him to go, oh, shit, everybody really figured this out. Okay, well, we can still have it be that, but how can I add something to it, I guess? Were there other writers on Glass besides Shyamalan? No. I mean, not credited anyway. Yeah. Maybe he should bring in other writers because he did kind of, you know, paint himself into a corner with the whole, my thing is having the twist. And now he doesn't want to be known for the twist, but it's like, dude, we know that you're going to throw us a twist because that's what you do. Yeah. But he is a good director. So perhaps he should try to work from other people's material. I know it can be kind of difficult to step back and tell yourself that you yeah. need to bring in somebody else, but... I mean, looking back on it now, that is a fairly obvious, you know, two plus two equals four situation. And I am a little surprised that he wouldn't take the time to go to somebody he trusts yes. and say, hey, what should I do about this? Yeah, I, I agree. And I also think that, I mean, I get it that it's part of the media narrative of... I wrote this 20 years ago, so now... And, you know, again, like we've discussed already, in some ways I'm like, I know you wrote this 20 years ago. <laughs> but, and we know. Yeah, but in some ways I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, whatever. So it's just, again, it's not a... It's not a it's, a... it's a small observation. It's a small... It's just a question. Like, I would love to ask Knight. Just, I don't know if, you know, ask him, A, did you see the response um, after Split came out? Which I'm sure the answer would be yes. Did you ever think about changing it? Or, or and, and I'm sure that what he would say is, but it wasn't about that. It wasn't about, you know, it, 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 that was not the reveal. The reveal was, you know, 
that we all fell for glasses master plan anyway. And, you know, and at the end of the day, this hero is inside you and yada, 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 you know, you have powers if you just believe. Exactly. Well, and you know, belief is belief, belief is okay. This is one more thing, just a little side tangent, because that's important. Belief mm-hmm. is at the core of all three of these movies. Yeah. Do you believe, you know, does the son believe his daughter or his father is a hero, a superhero? I'm going to shoot my father um, because I believe. Um, James McAvoy believes that he is all these different people and therefore he is strong enough. Like that's a human, you know, whether it's the mom with the adrenaline pushing over the car that we've all heard that story a thousand times. He believes he has these abilities and therefore he can. Um, and here we are now in glass with belief and, and, and he said, that's what McAvoy keeps saying, believe, 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 like all that. So, you know, the, this trilogy is not a political trilogy, but I do think that similar to the way that we are having conversations about superheroes in ways that we weren't in um, 2000, I think that truth and belief is a big conversation that America is having right now. What is a fact? What is true? What is science? Well, I believe, I believe that this is true. So it's true now. And it's like, but that's not what fact is. That's, so it just seems like a missed opportunity or could have been an opportunity to use the metaphor of belief to make a contemporary observation about why we need heroes and the dangers and positives of believing in yourself and I can do this, I'm this, I'm that. Um, that is probably not the, mo- that's not the movie he wanted to make, but I am always very, I, I have a little bell that goes off anytime we talk about, well, I believe it, so it's true, or I believe I can do this. We're a secret society and we believe this, so we're gonna kill all these people. Like, do you know what I mean? It's, it's just a thing that he kind of left on the table that I, I was like, oh, that could have been interesting if he had a writer's room. Yeah, this is uh, the time when a writer's room might benefit you because I I will say that when Sarah Paulson brought up the idea of it being dangerous to believe that you are a superhero and that you can hurt yourself and others, I kind of expected them to explore that territory a little bit more. Absolutely, And it's just something they kind of mention in passing and then keep going. Well, and it's responsive. I mean, honestly, like Kick-Ass kind of or or James Gunn's Super. Like Mm -hmm. these are movies that are still working within the confines of the superhero genre, but having, it doesn't even have to be like, you know, scream level meta commentary, but they are commenting on the tropes that we all know and that are ingrained in our pop culture now. And the fact that this shit would be dangerous if you were doing it, it doesn't matter if you have some element of superhero strength or whatever, like you're still a human being, you're still susceptible to death, you're not invincible. And yeah, like I do think that that is a really interesting, if we're doing a grounded superhero movie or the conclusion to a grounded superhero trilogy um I do feel like that that's you're right like that's something you just kind of glossed over and it's like but wait a second come back here like that's interesting you know yeah because it's a beautiful concept and it's one that I really really enjoy the idea that if you believe in something enough so it is you know yes I think therefore I am but 
at the same time, even though it's a great idea to have for these superheroes who believe in themselves enough to arguably alter their physical reality, one of these super beings is a villain. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they don't really talk about as much is, well, this guy believes in himself too. And because of that, he's murdered lots of people. Yeah. And because of that, James Mack, I don't know if you're talking about Glass or you're talking about Kevin. Well, both. both yeah, but actually, like, yeah. Kevin is eating girls. Yeah. Kidnapping murdering and eating young women yeah I mean and and I understand what Knight is doing by showing us trauma begets trauma but uh that's a slippery true crime slope that anybody who understands how like anybody who has an absolute fascination with with macabre morbidity kind of realizes, yeah, but like not everybody is Ted Bundy. Not everybody is just, lots of people were abused. Lots of people have trauma, but they don't turn into serial killers. It's a choice. It's a, yes. Like that's, that is a path for sure. And similarly, like, you know, David Dunn makes that point in Unbreakable very clearly when he finds out what Glass did to find him. And he's like, you murdered all of these people. This is not, and of course, but here's what I like about that dynamic at least is Glass is like, I know, but I have a reason and I believe my reason is more important than all of that. And that is a philosophical argument that quote fingers good and quote fingers, fingers evil have to have. But when you muddy the waters with Kevin severe mental illness, severe violence, violent tendencies, murderous, and then you make us feel sad for him? Like, it's a very, uh, and it's that, it's, it's such a muddy water. It is. That, and we, we ignore it a little because we love James McAvoy. Yeah, naturally. we like Hedwig. There's a great little graphic novel. Um, It was the first thing by Joe Hill that I ever read, Mm. and I love it so much. And I've heard rumors about it being brought to the big screen. I don't know if that's still happening or not. It was definitely the first thing that popped in my mind when I watched the new trailer for James Gunn's new movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's essentially the same story in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, but, uh, Joe Hill's The Cape, very dark, very well-written, uh, story about a super villain. Mm-hmm. It's the story of a little boy who has this cape that he likes to tie to himself when he's a kid and he pretends he's, he can fly. And then when he's older, he finds the cape, realizes that it actually makes him fly, but because he has this sour heart, instead of using his powers for good, he uses them for evil. Mm-hmm. And so he uses this power to go around and hurt people. He he hurts his girlfriend. He hurts his brother. And his argument is, well, I was always picked on as a kid. My brother was always the one that got all the attention. Nobody ever loved me. And at the end of the day, it's like, it doesn't matter. You're still making a choice to do these things. It doesn't matter what happened to you. You're taking your pain and using it to exert pain on others. And it's such a unique and interesting exploration of this other side of that world and I was kind of hoping Glass would tap into that yeah. a little bit more and it just barely scratches the surface. Yeah, agree, agree. Um, you just reminded me of something, of two somethings actually and they're just like very quick observations. 
One, James McAvoy cannot keep his shirt on to save his life <laughs> in this movie, which I very much appreciated. They were like, we got him a trainer. We are showing it off. And I was like, get it, James McAvoy. But like, at one point when he puts the zip up jacket to go, to sneak out, they walk out and then like immediately he gets outside where it's cold. And he's like, get this jacket off of me. I have to show my great body right now um james mcavoy very tiny man for the record he is i am five foot almost seven and i think i am taller than him wow. uh he's a compact individual maybe i'm wrong but i stood next to him for a minute and he's not a large man a tiny little thirst trap yeah oh absolutely he's, he's a han- he's handsome and he can get it okay second of all and this is a more serious observation, not serious, but like legit observation that audience, if you know the answer, please tell me. If you, Kaylin, if you know the answer, please tell me. So uh, they, we establish in Unbreakable that David Dunn's, uh, you know, kryptonite is water, right? Mm-hmm. And did you remember that going into um, Glass? Yeah. Okay. So at the top of the movie, those knuckleheads like assault that man on the street uh, David Dunn, he, they're sitting in the, in the uh, living room playing video games, whatever. We hear somebody come into the kitchen and, you know, whatever. We know the camera stays in the living room. And, of course, the two guys react and then, of course, fight, fight, fight. Okay. I noticed because I had just rewatched Unbreakable and I was, like, paying close attention. David walks into the kitchen. We don't see this. You hear him in there. And you hear the water run. Like, he turns the water on. And I don't know if... It's a very distinct sound cue. And then he turns the water back off again. And I was like, what is happening? Like, why? That's such a weird... I mean, it is such a deliberate choice, obviously. Like, what could he be doing in there? Strange. You You know what I mean? Yeah. Did, Why? Did anyone else notice that? Audience, please tell me if you noticed it. Tell me if I make, made it up. Maybe I, I didn't make it up. I, I definitely know. And I was like, wait a minute. And then, because actually, it confused me for later in the movie because I thought what they were telling us was he had mastered the water. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he, Like the fact that he would engage with it so deliberately right off the bat. But I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm misinterpreting. Maybe I I don't know. Yeah, there was also an idea that popped in my brain at the beginning of Glass, but then by the end it kind of phased out <laughs> because I, you know, uh, when David Dune walks into a room, he always turns off the light before he attacks right. his uh, his foe. Yes. And it, it's something that's, like, intimidating and, you know, provides him a shadow so that he can – because he's a, a superhero that doesn't want to be recognized. Right. He wants to do his work in the shadows. But I was thinking when I was watching Glass and now we have this final pairing up of these big super beings, I was like, oh, is this kind of like a visual sort of little thing where his turning off the light may have something to do with James McAvoy's character constantly talking about the light Mm. and putting his characters in the light. Now that's interesting. Yeah, and the whole like, oh, well now the Beast is going to have the light, now Hedwig is going to have the light. I was like, is he Uh. kind of visually turning off the light because he is now going up against this other super being? But then by the end, we're in broad daylight, and that kind of fades away. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I was just reaching. No, I I mean, I think that's actually a very, again, like, writer's room. That's a very clever, interesting, like, 
device that he could have used that he beautifully set up. Mm-hmm. There, there are things sometimes when I like sometimes with writers, you're like, oh, you were so close. Yeah. Like you, you put it, you had all the pieces. Oh, honey. Yeah, it's like, oh, but that's that is to me just as a side note because I've been doing a lot of writing lately. The biggest gift in the world is when you accidentally set something up yeah. and you're like, oh my God, look what I did. Perfect. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, I think that's the version of, you know, like the writing tip of like, let the characters write themselves essentially. Like, it, but I say that to say that, yeah, he, he really laid that groundwork and that's interesting. And hmm. it just kind of was like, no, never mind. Gonna have the final fight in sunlight. Which I was okay with, but I was kind of like, oh, but you had a thing going there, yeah. and maybe that would have been cool in the end, but I guess not. It was also in a parking lot, which I'm sorry, but, like, I, it just makes me giggle that, like, a studio, big studio movie is, like, a third of it is set in a parking lot. Like, it's, yeah. I, I get, I, yeah, you don't, no one needs to, internet, don't explain to me, like, I get it. It's not about the big building and yada, 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 we know, I know, but still, I kind of was like, yeah, but it's a parking lot. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I will say, like, my thing with this was I was kind of like, this movie is so weird. I feel like even if you don't love it, you've got to just respect Shyamalan for going full Shyamalan. I agree. You know? I Listen, the big swings at, or, or the he com- – I feel like he – some people might argue with this actually, but I feel like he committed to his idea, his vision – um, like it or not, M. Night Shyamalan commits to his ideas and his visions. And I, like I said at the top of the show, I mean, 44 minutes of Unbreakable Glass split, The Lady in the Water, The Happening, The Village. I want to see 44-minute versions of those stories, you know? Yeah. And sometimes you want to see feature-length versions of them. Um, but yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a this is a weird movie. It's super weird, and it, it kind of made me think of that interview that I read recently with the John Krasinski, I think it was New York Times, where he was talking about this conversation he had with Paul Thomas Anderson, mm. and he was saying that like they watched this they watched this weird artsy movie together with like a group of friends, um, I believe at Paul's house, and after the movie ended, Krasinski said to Paul like. He said, like, I don't think that was a very good movie. It just wasn't good. And Paul kind of, like, politely took him aside and was like, don't say that. He was like, here's the thing. If you don't support this movie, he's like, you may not like it. That's fine. But we have to support the weird films because if we don't, then they're not going to let us make them anymore. It's true. And, I mean, that's a, a different scale, perhaps, than what this movie is on. But it was the same kind of feeling I felt watching it, where I was like, even if you don't love this, even if it's not your thing, you got to respect the swing, like yeah. you were saying. He swung for the fences, and that's admirable. Absolutely. And, you know, I will say, like, when I finally saw the movie and I tweeted about it and said, like, yeah, I had fun with it. Like, is it perfect? No. It's absolutely – there are things I would change, absolutely. But – I had fun. It was weird. I kind of dig it. And the overwhelming response from regular people who are not in the industry was exactly that. It was like, yeah, I liked it too. Or yeah, I'm glad I saw it. Or yeah, I had fun with it. Didn't love the ending, but overall enjoyed it. And I'm like, and this is just a bigger overall thing in general, but it's kind of like, yeah, you know, we got to get to a place where things can. So exactly what you just said appreciating a body of work. You know, like, it's not... I think that it is all parts of a whole. And M. Night Shyamalan is leaving behind a legacy, a very distinct 
um, vision and group of films and they're, they're his, you know, and they feel very his. And I respect, you know, we don't, I, he caught a lot of shit for initially on Time Magazine. Is he the next Spielberg? And, you know, the answer is no, he's M. Night Shyamalan, which is cool. But I do think that you can extend the Spielberg comparison to where it's like he's making his stuff his way. And this is what makes him have fun. And sometimes you get Indiana Jones, but sometimes you get, you know, Things that aren't Indiana Jones. Ready Player One. Ready Player One or whatever. So I do think that I agree. I'm like, I respect the weird. I respect the commitment. I respect like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And also, I do think it needs to be said that pop culture wise, we have this relationship with M. Night Shyamalan as, as as an audience where it's like, we like that we got got, but we're mad about it. So the next movie, we're like, all right, you're not going to get me this time. And then it's like, he sucks now. Oh, look, he's back. And inevitably, now he's got to suck again. And it, uh, whether and that none of that can be true or all of it can be true. But I do feel like he has backed himself into a corner a little bit in his career where it's like the media kind of just, the media and the audience who thinks that they're critics, because everybody's a critic, obviously, like, you know, they, they kind of want to knock him down a peg just so that he can rise back up again so that they can knock him back down again, you know? He is his own superhero. He is. Oh, what a good way to Aww. end. That was so good. Um, all right, so last call. Any Anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? There is one thing that I, you know, I know I'm a, I'm not a director, so I, you, you do you, but Shyamalan, I just think you should probably stop appearing in your own films. It's so distracting. Yeah, and you know, he gave himself an arc. Allegedly, he plays the same character in the whole trilogy. Mm. Uh, and I read that, and you know, I will, I will agree with that, and I will add on to that. Um, the, the, your, the, everyone's improv isn't funny. No, it's not. There was a lot of, like, with the orderlies stuff that I was just like, oh, man. This is clearly just the director saying, just have fun. Like, you know, talk like talk like you would talk at home. Like, forget that we're in a superhero movie. Just talk. And he's talking. It's just, and I was like, no, no. It's not charming. Feels very stiff. Um, and I'm not even just talking about Knight's dialogue, which was distracting and clearly not. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I in general kind of think that directors should not do cameos, mm. um, just my personal opinion. Um, of course, that can always vary. You know, you've got your John Krasinski's that can be your star and your director, and that worked really well in A, a Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. And maybe that works well for some people. Maybe that won't work well again. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But... I think people always point to Hitchcock and say, well, he did it. And to that I say, yes, but at a certain point he realized that he was becoming distracting mm-hmm. to his audience because they began looking for him and he stopped doing it. Yeah. And I think maybe Shyamalan should take that lesson into account and maybe <laughs> stop putting himself there. Because the second he shows up, I'm taken out of the movie. Oh, I'm like, oh, it's Shyamalan. Yeah. yeah. This is a movie I'm watching. This isn't real. He has branded himself in so many ways. And, you know, listen, I mean, maybe that's what he wants. Like, there are very few directors who are legit recognizable 
visible and he is recognizable. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say about M. Night Shyamalan that I want to give a little hat tip to is that while I do agree that his female characters are underwritten, um, pretty much in general, um, not all, but I would argue probably most, um, in rewatching his movies, there's a lot of diversity on screen. Like, that is something, especially, like, you look at Unbreakable, and there are lots of characters that, actors, and honestly, it's what Philadelphia looks like. I mean, that's, like, the city that he's from, and that all of his movies are set in, so, like, that makes sense. But, um, but I do, I specifically noticed in Unbreakable, like, he, he was sort of on the diversity um, awareness as a diverse man. Did you have to stop yourself from saying train? No, <laughs> no, I didn't, but that's, that's kind of amazing. I didn't even realize I did that. What a good writer we are. <laughs> um, you. setting it up, but no, I, I just, I, cause I didn't want to make it sound, um, like di- diverse representation on screen is a mandate. Um, because I don't believe that it is. I think that over the last handful of years, a lot of people have become, um, aware of of the notion of that, you know, yeah, we need to make life look like life and make things on screen look like real life. Um, but I I did notice um, and appreciate that night night has been doing it um, the the whole pretty much the whole time, and I thought that that was cool. Yeah, so. yeah. It's funny how he started out like so ahead of his time, then it's almost like he caught up with himself. That's a great point. <laughs> That's a great way to say it. I, I think that's a great way to say it. I don't know. Maybe he just got too much success too fast, and then he kind of had to back away. I, I do like the idea that he doesn't live in Hollywood. He still lives in Philadelphia. Yes. And he's not really in the Hollywood crowd. Yep. And he kind of isolates himself away. Um, I think that's a big reason why the visit worked so well is because he just like went off, rented a house, had a very tiny crew, a small cast, and just went and made this little movie and then kind of snuck up and presented it to us. Yeah. And here we are expecting another airbender and we're given this tiny little very personal movie and it worked. I mean, it's not the the greatest horror movie ever made, but... uh, But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. And I think that's a thing too is that he started out on such a high note with the Sixth Sense. I mean, that is such a feat. There's no way you give that to us every time. I, I agree. And, you know, I was having this conversation with Sam Levine recently, and he was like, well, it wasn't his first feature. And I was like, I know, Sam, but that was the first, like, one that anyone paid attention to. Yeah. You know, like, the, I, but I, I agree. I agree. Like, the bar that was set, I mean, just... And also, so here's the thing that's interesting. Like, if he came out of the gate... I know it wasn't his first feature, but let's let's say for argument's sake, you come out of the gate with the sixth sense where you are just thrust onto the global stage. You know, nowadays, I feel like we have the savvy, the business savvy to go, okay, you wrote and directed uh, and produced this thriller that took the world by storm. Go make a movie that is the opposite of that or or go work with a studio and take your pick of any pre-existing. But instead, he was like, nope, I want to make my movies the way I want to make them forever. And it's kind of like, that's interesting. Like I it's we were talking about it earlier, but with Wayward Pines, the TV show, um, which season one I quite liked. Um, season two is unwatchable. But that and that's, by the way, not a knock on night that he I'm says nothing to do with night. It just has to do with the way network television is. Um, 
but he directed the pilot. And that was, I want to say, because I know Airbender is not um, an original property, but did he write the script for Last Airbender? You know, I don't know. I feel like he has written every feature that he has directed, but he did not write the pilot for uh, Wayward Pines. And he directed the pilot for Wayward Pines. And I liked the pilot for that. And I asked him about it and he was like, yeah, you know, um, like I, I, you know, it's something different for me. And I was like, do you think you would ever do that on a feature? And he's like, well, we'll see. I like making my own things, you know. And listen, he lives, lives and dies by his own by his own work, but I did think that was interesting. And he did write Airbender. So he wrote the script. Um, so it wasn't, even though it wasn't his original property, he did write, I think he has written, and he wrote the screenplay for After Earth, and he did the story for Devil. Uh, but yes, he written by Last Airbender. So yeah, everything. Hmm. All yeah, of his features. It's, it's kind of the same way. I mean, these are two wildly different directors Rob but zombie. uh rob zombie if he would just Agreed. direct something that he did not write yep he would knock it out of the park i know he would yep. and i say this as somebody who is a rob zombie apologist like i love this man with all my heart there's probably nothing about him that i don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> but i like having said that i recognize that his work is faltering and i'm over here saying yeah dude get over yourself just hire somebody else to write your stuff yeah stop backpedaling into familiar territory and giving us crap like 31 and I'm sorry but I'm not excited for the upcoming Devil's Reject sequel a movie that he said he would never make he adamantly swore years ago that he would never make a sequel to the Devil's Rejects because he was like no that's done the characters are dead I'm moving on and now he's just it's like the reception to Lords of Salem scared him so much that he just backpedaled jeez I mean yeah, this is a well. Okay, let's. No, I'm going on a tangent. No, but, but let's stay on this for five more minutes because I like this, and I've been thinking it the whole time. I think there are there are distinct similarities between the two of them, and um, you know, I agree. I think Rob Zombie is authentic. I think he is making a he makes movies that are very much him. I think that he. Um, is has a beautiful eye, and um, there is without a doubt a really distinct control as a director that he has. But I agree 100%. I have been wanting him to direct a script that he did not write for ages, and I'm actually one of the few who who really likes Lords of Salem. And I do too. yeah, I think it's I think it's a really cool. This is the thing: is like criticism is so hard, and people are so sensitive, and that's okay because we're our work is deeply personal. And I understand that, but you know, yeah, I mean, there, there is something to be said for directors. I understand the, um, temptation to play to your base, that small base. There are a handful of iconic people who I can name right now who are literally making movies for the same people over and over. They are not interested in growing their their base or expanding their horizons because I guess it's a loyalty thing. It's a fear thing. It's a no, I'm good over here thing. But we're talking about talent that is legit talent that has potential to really become interesting. 
I know I was so excited when I watched Lords of Salem because, I mean, it's not a perfect movie, but I was so happy to see this filmmaker that I love grow and expand into new territory and to have these, you know, very long, very still shots from a guy that had been known for his shaky cam. And it was so exciting to me to watch him kind of grow up as somebody that like loved him for years. And then it was like, as much as he likes to say, I don't care what people think, that's his whole mantra is, I don't care, I do what I want. Obviously, you do care because then you follow that up with something that feels like the B-sides of your former work and was nearly unwatchable. And I'm over here just like, Rob, what are you doing? You made such great progress. And now you're just like too scared to take the next step because not everybody loved it. And with Lords of Salem was dealing with subject matter that was more grown up, like was dealing with addiction, was dealing with more um, like internal uh, and reflecting on, on who you are as a person. And like there was some really heavy, cool and also, like, badass and weird and, like, yeah. you know, very Rob Zombie stuff. But, yeah, it was – I agree. Like, I'm a person who actually just um, – I straight up do not like Devil's Rejects. And I can't even – and I even – I watched it, you know, when it first came out. And I remember being like, nope, I do not like this. And then I rewatched it because it has over time become, you know, this this um, thing that people say is a classic. And I rewatched it and I was like, no, I hate this. Like, this is, uh, and and I'm a, I believe the type of viewer that can at least appreciate things, even when I find them unpleasant. Um, but I can't find anything to appreciate in in Devil's Rejects, and so to learn that, yeah, it's like, yeah, let's go back and do more with the Firefly flam- family. I'm like, I'm all set. Yeah, I'm I'm good, bro. I mean, and haven't we grown up a little bit pop culture wise too? Like again, it's like, dude, that was very much of its time. But yeah, maybe I don't want to watch women get raped for no reason. And and again, I'm not criticizing the horror genre. I, I sometimes unpleasant things happen in these movies, but there needs to be. Well, yeah, like going back to the idea of glass and believing in yourself, mm-hmm. like. Look at Lord of Salem. Look what he created when he believed in himself. I mean, there were certainly witch movies that came before that, but especially like the opening scenes, the... I love that stuff. so good. It almost feels like a precursor to The Witch, which came out a few years later. Yes. And those were movies that like I personally wanted that nobody was making. I had been wanting a witch movie like The Witch for so long. I do not understand people that complain about this movie. I will fight this battle to the grave. I love this movie so much. It's exactly what I want in a witch movie. And it was like something that Rob Zombie had tapped into in Lords of Salem. And he's, you know, exploring kind of new territory through very old territory and a lot of people did not react kindly to that and I I'm sure it's really really hard as a filmmaker to have this very loyal fan base that suddenly lashes out at you because you're delivering something different than what they're used to but good god man you were doing so good yeah and then you got scared and now you're just tiptoeing again and I don't get it yeah you're just stunting your own growth and it's like him and Shyamalan just kind of have this tendency to get in their own way sometimes. Absolutely. And it's like very frustrating as a fan of theirs to watch them do it. Yeah, I was reading this interview with, with M. Night Shyamalan 
where they were like, so, you know, it was a Hollywood reporter and it was after Glass had come out and it was like, so audiences are having sort of a divided reaction to this movie. And, and Knight just straight up goes, really? I haven't experienced that. All of my test screenings were uh, off the charts and people I've talked to love Glass. And there's really no, I haven't, I think that, you know, critics are going to say what they're going to say, but like the audiences are just loving it. Like he believes... <laughs> whatever he believes. And you know what? That's fine. Like, I do think there's something to be said for like, everyone I talk to says it's great. So I'm fine with that. Thank you very much. Like, but I, yeah, it's kind of, you know, uh, it's kind of reinforcing your own opinion. And yes, criticism is tough and admitting our faults is tough, but you know what makes you a superhero, Shyamalan, is... <laughs> overcoming challenges and obstacles that you and the world place for yourself. I mean, Buffy didn't end the arc the same way that she began. Right. And, and I mean, like, even the end of Glass reminded me a little bit of the end of Buffy, the whole idea that she's taking her power and sharing it with all yeah. the potential slayers. And the end of Glass is these characters coming forth and saying, we exist. We're going to put the proof out there. If you exist, come forward, mm -hmm. too. We're going to all unite in this stance. And it's a, it's a noble message. It's a movie I really enjoyed. But as much as Shyamalan is starting to kind of return to form and be a filmmaker that I know he can be, I think he also needs to kind of look in the mirror a little bit and acknowledge his weaknesses to yep. really grow. Yep. I I would agree. I would agree. So I guess the last question is, what do we think is next? I mean, they killed everybody at the end of this, right? Yeah. So I mean, I believe them when they say that this is done. The Glass trilogy is done. I did think that there was definitely a potential for the survivors of the Glass trilogy to like have a new trilogy. Um, I don't think that he will. I think they're he's done, done. But um, I'm just endlessly curious for what's next from him in general. You know, like what, what fresh idea, will it be goofy? Will it be scary? Will it be something we're not expecting at all? Like, I don't know. I would like to see him work with Anya Taylor-Joy again. Cause I really liked her in Split and I think she's a very interesting actress. Yeah, I agree. And maybe through some form of collaboration, she could help him kind of fully form that female character because I, there's like moments in, in Split and in Glass that I really enjoy and I would like to see them paired up again, but perhaps he can allow her to bring something to the table because she's, she's just a really fascinating actress to me. I agree. I think she's great. I, everything I've seen her in, she's been exceptional and um, I think she's definitely multifaceted and very talented and I would like to see them together again too. And... Um, I'm very curious to see James McAvoy in It also. Yeah, I can't wait, man. I am so excited for that movie. Yeah, me too. I'm just, I'm scared about how excited I am, though. I know. I'm trying not to get too excited because I definitely had, like, downplayed the enthusiasm Same. for the first one. Oh. Like, because I, I, I was excited for the first one, but, you know, I was, I'm a huge Kerry Fukunaga fan. Same, yeah. We so, were in the same boat there. Yeah. I was a little disappointed when he left, and by little, I mean a lot, and I didn't have very high hopes, and then I watched the movie, and I was like, oh, no, this is great. Yep. Agreed. Definitely love it, it's to me. It's still very much Fukunaga's story. I read the script. They don't change a lot, but what they do change are the right choices. 
choices. Yes. So agreed. Moschietti did a great job, and I am excited for the sequel. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, so, all right. Well, this is a great talk. Do you feel good? I do. Good. Thank you for doing this and giving up your Thursday night. Yeah, thank you for having me on your lovely podcast. Of course, anytime. All right, so we'll be back for the next trilogy, the next controversial uh, weird genre movie. I'm going to call Kaylin and say, do you want to do a podcast? (laughs) All right, love. Thank you. Alrighty, friends, that is going to do it for me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed uh, diving in. And um, yeah, I, what did you think of Glass? What do you think about this trilogy? Um, I, you know, I think it's a fun and I think it's a fun swing. I think it is. Uh, I, I, the more I think about Unbreakable, the more I truly love Unbreakable. And at the end of the day, James McAvoy is is absolutely one of our great, um, one of the great performers that I I didn't see. I didn't see any of that coming. I've always been a fan. I've liked what I've seen of his. But but man, he's got some chops, and I'm very excited to see a long career ahead for him. Um, if you are interested in supporting this show. Please tell your friends, uh, please share on social, or if you care to support the show uh, financially, you can go over to patreon.com slash Clark Wolf, and um, there are a bunch of different tiers from $1 to $25 a month um, so that you can support. There is a mini episode every week that is exclusive to $5 and higher monthly contributors. Um, We do watch-alongs where you get to vote on the movie, and we all do digital watch-alongs once a month, which is super fun, Um, and there are giveaways, etc., etc. So please um, check it out if you are so inclined. And thank you again for listening. Uh, we've got new episodes coming on track to have them for for many, many, many weeks to come. So um, I hope you enjoyed this one, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.